<sighs> it's good to be here and good to see you all. And all the new folks I'm looking so forward to getting to know. This is really lovely. Well, what I want to talk about tonight was our practice form. And one of the things we've discovered since the pandemic came is our practice form has gotten kind of weird because we have had this way of doing things that we've known about, but with uh, going to Zoom and coming to hybrid, it's, it's much more difficult, much more challenging. So I wanted to come back and talk about practice form and its role, what it does for us. Why should we even care about this? Well, that's what I'd like to, like to talk about tonight. Um, our practice was developed over a very long period of time. Since the time of the Buddha, almost 2,600 years ago, people have practiced with this practice form or something very similar, and it's been very effective. So it was the gift of our ancestors. And I imagine it developed bit by bit over time because they found out what worked and what didn't work. Now, it often seems odd, this practice form. Why do we do it this way? So let's start outside that door. We are surrounded by a practice form in our life. It's the way we do things in our culture. We don't think of it as a practice form, but it really is a form of practice. We all have agreed, either consciously or unconsciously, to do things a certain way. So, for instance, um, we all decide that the right thing to do is to go to school and study hard and get a good job, marry the person we love, have children, live in a house with three bedrooms and two bathrooms, have at least one car, all these things, right? These are all the norms of our life. And we can think of them like a practice form. What that practice form points us towards in the world outside this door is personal satisfaction. We believe that if we do it that way, we will be personally satisfied. We will find a life that is meaningful and important and recognized and valued by others. So there's nothing wrong with these practice forms. We could, we could debate whether or not they're good. They're usually good for the majority, not so much for the minority. But, you know, that's another, that's another talk. We also have this practice form in here but it points us to a fundamentally different thing than the practice form that's out there. So while that practice form is pointing us towards individual satisfaction, this practice form is pointing us towards liberation, towards freedom. That's the, that's the stated or unstated promise of the Zen practice form, just like the unstated or stated promise of the form out there is that we will be satisfied with our lives. We will honor our individual natures. Now, often we come into a new practice form like a Zen practice form and we look at it and we go, well now that's weird. Why do we do it that way? So you might have yourself um, having thoughts like, well, that doesn't work. 
That's kind of dumb. Um, or how about I don't like doing that? Yeah, all this other stuff is good, but that one, I don't like to do that. Or maybe um, someone in the Sangha tells you that this is what to do, and you go, oh, yeah, try and tell me what to do. I'm not going to do that. Yeah, and this is all okay. It's all okay to, to question these things. Um, but we might waste a lot of time if we get stuck there. I know I did. When I first came to the practice forum, I went, hmm, no, that's not what I want. That's not going to work. I don't like that. And I wasted a lot of time. So one of my hopes for this talk is that I can convince you not to do what I did, which is waste a lot of time. And each of us has to decide when you encounter this practice form if that works for you. It doesn't work for everybody. If it did, there'd be a lot more people in this room. But there aren't. It works for some of us. And if it doesn't work for us, then we can say, that's not for me. And there's lots of other practice forms that can point us towards freedom and liberation. This isn't the only one. But if it does work for us, we have to really give ourselves to it or it won't do its work. One of my teachers used to like to say when people would question the practice form, well, we offer apples here. And if you like apples, we've got apples. Now, if you want oranges instead, we can help you find oranges, but we're not going to start offering oranges here. (laughs) And I think that's a a really good way of explaining it. We offer apples. This is how we do it. You know, for me, it was almost accidental that I, that I fell into this form. I had a friend who was practicing in this tradition, and I got interested, and I said, okay, I want to go see that. And I went, and I never left. It's kind of accidental. So if you do decide this is the form you want to practice, please give yourself to the form. In a real sense, we take refuge in the form. And the form functions like a kind of a container that shows us our rough edges. We're going to bounce against those walls again and again, and it's going to kind of wear us down over time. And in many ways, our practice form is a refuge because it protects us from doing things that ultimately harm ourselves and others. I remember when I was getting ready to take the precepts in a formal way, and I had been looking at these precepts, and the things that I looked at all were, I can't do that. I can't do this stuff. I can't eat meat. I can't tell lies. I can't do all these things. And it felt so restrictive to me until this one moment when I was actually taking the precepts in a formal ceremony. And the, the line, I remember the line, it, it just, sink, I, I vow to speak truthfully with words that inspire confidence, joy, and hope. And at those words, I slipped through the hourglass. I came out the other side and I realized this form protects me 
It doesn't restrict me, it protects me. If I'm not telling lies left and right, I don't have to worry about what I said to this person or that person. I don't have to guard myself that way. I'm free, free. So please just jump into the river of form and allow it to carry you. Even if you don't understand why or what it is, just jump in. Let's talk about what our practice forms are. I've got a little preamble there. We sit together on Tuesday evenings. When does sitting meditation start? When does it start for you? There's no wrong answer. Don't worry, I'm not testing you. But when, does, when does it start? When you come to Tuesday night, when does sitting meditation start? When you open the door. When you open the door. Good answer. Anybody else? When you sit on the cushion. When you sit on the cushion? Uh-huh. So I'd like to make a, um, an arbitrary suggestion to start your sitting meditation when you leave to come here. So let's say you're at home or maybe you're at work. When you walk to the car, that's when it can begin. You can walk to the car mindfully. You can open the door of the car and take a breath. You can sit down on the seat And before you turn the key, you can remember that this car that you're about to start is a miracle of engineering. It's going to take you from there to there, hopefully safely, but it could also kill someone in that very same trip. So we can start our meditation right there. And then when we arrive here, we can get out of the car, we can walk mindfully to the door, we can open the door, as Sarah said, take a breath. We can plan our trip so we arrive here 10 minutes before the sitting starts, so that when sitting starts, we are fully able to enjoy sitting. We don't sit down with our heart racing because we ran out the door and had six other things we had to do. We had to put the dog in the backyard and all those things. No, we can start our meditation then, so by the time we actually sit on our cushion, we can benefit from it. We don't waste half our time just stilling our heart. So you might, you might um, practice with that. See what is the right time for you to arrive here and start your meditation. Maybe it's after you've come through the door and you see the Sangha and you remember to stop and put your hands together and bow. This practice form of bowing is saying, together with all beings, the Buddha nature in me recognizes the Buddha nature in you. The very best in me sees that there's the same very best in you. That's what this means. So maybe that's when it starts for us. Maybe it starts when you get here and you see your friends and you want to start talking and you say, no, I'm here to practice. We can chat later. So instead of chatting, you bow. You decide. 
You decide when it begins. Maybe someday your practice will be such that it never ends, so you don't have to worry about when it begins. You're always practicing. So when we do arrive at our cushion, what do we do? Why do we sit? Well, I believe that over the millennia, people have discovered that sitting meditation is the very best way to train our minds to become liberated and free. The very best way. So we've inherited that wisdom from our ancestors, and we can we can practice the form that they've offered us. Now, I want to say a little bit about what sitting is not. Sitting is not thinking. It's not planning. It's not ruminating about what your brother said to you when you were six. It is letting go of all those things so that we can be present with this moment right now as it is. We have plenty of time for thinking, and plenty of time for ruminating, and plenty of time for arguing with our brother. We don't have to do that on this precious moment that we have on the cushion, surrounded by the sangha and the energy of the sangha that makes it possible for us to go deeper than we would by ourselves. How do we do that? What does that actually look like? There's a great um, sutra by, by Dogen, the Japanese Zen master, where he talks very specifically about what it's like to sit on the cushion and what to do. And he offers some very specific direction for us. One of the first things we do when we sit down is, if it's, if it's possible, to sit on a cushion. Um, and it's not possible for all of us, especially if we didn't start this when we were young. It's pretty hard, if you started this when we're 60 years old, to bend our legs in a lotus position. But if it's possible, I really recommend that you try sitting on the cushion, even though it might be uncomfortable at first. um, Maybe you'll get used to it. If not, don't torture your body. But one of the reasons why it's, it's really nice is because when we sit down on the cushion like this, we can have three points of contact with the earth our bottom, our sitting bones, and then our knees if we're in full lotus, or in my case I'm sitting in a half lotus position, so I have one knee, and then this kind of hybrid thing hanging out here, partly on my foot, partly on my knee. Um, But that, if you notice, like there's a tripod right here in front of me. Tripod is the most stable position. Two doesn't stand up. Four is less stable than three. So if you have this possibility of sitting with three, it's very stable. Now if you're on a chair, you can have a similar stability having one foot, one foot, and your sitting bones. So that again, that gives you that kind of tripod stability there. So you can experiment with that. The next thing that Dogen um, suggested that we do was is check our posture. And this is another reason why sitting on a cushion is so good, because there's nothing behind us for us to go onto, right, and and, and slump into. We're required to sit in good posture. 
And what is good posture? Good posture is balancing each one of our bones right on top of the other so that it takes the absolute minimum amount of effort to sit stably. So our hips are here and our spine begins to balance on our hips, each vertebrae balanced. Our, then up into our neck, our skull balances right there on top. And the way Dogen suggests we test this is once we sit down to rock a little bit left and right until we find that balance point that's just in alignment with the, the gravity of the earth. And then do the same thing forward and back until we find that balance point so that everything is in harmony with the gravity of the earth. And it takes so little effort when we do it this way. It's really quite nice. Now once we find our posture, Dogen also suggests that we sit with our hands in a mudra like this in our lap, touching our, finger, our thumbs together. And the reason this is, when you are aware of your thumbs touching just lightly, not pushing hard, not opening a space, it's another mindfulness bell for us. When we notice that, in my case, sometimes my thumbs end up pushing against each other and they get tired or the blood goes out of the end of my fingers and I realize, oh, I'm no longer mindful. And I, I'm, I'm reminded to come back and just feel the, the thumb tips touching. And then he suggests that we hold our jaw in a relaxed way with our mouth closed and our tongue on the roof of our mouth right behind our front teeth. So when I do all those things, something really lovely happens. I feel present. You may want to experiment with that as well. Now once we find ourselves there on the, on the cushion sitting, then what do we do? I said, well, let's not think, let's not ruminate, let's not do all those other things that we do while we're going through daily life, but what do we do instead? And I'd like to just make a couple of suggestions that we might use to anchor ourselves in the present moment. Each one of these I could expand on in great length, so I'm just going to kind of mention them just really briefly. But these practices form an anchor for us. And the anchor metaphor, if you're a boater, you know that if you drop an anchor over the side and you set that anchor in the bottom, that even when the current comes and wants to sweep you away, you've got this anchor that won't allow it to sweep you away. Without the anchor, you would sit there and you would think, ah, oh, I'm just sitting in one place, and you realize you just bumped into Lopez Island. <laughs> right? And, and so we, we, we need an anchor. So, so the, one of the wonderful anchors we can use is simply becoming aware of our breathing. Take a breath right now. Take a breath in, in mindfulness. Thich Nhat Hanh taught that a single breath can be the difference between life and death. That it can bring us from doing something very harmful to ourselves or others 
and change that into peace and freedom in one single breath. And he knew this to be true because he was so challenged by the world he lived in in Vietnam during the war where he saw his friends being murdered. He saw villages being bombed where his anger came up very strongly. And he knew that he had to take a breath in mindfulness simply not to do something harmful. Now our lives aren't that extreme and so we might not think the breath is powerful enough to really transform us, but it is. So we may enjoy breathing like this, taking a breath in and feeling the sharp air at the tip of our nose. Try that. It's cool and it's sharp. And then the out-breath, warm and moist, taking the fluids out of our body. When we breathe like that, it calls us back to this moment, this precious gift of being alive. These cedars and these maples outside, they're making this very air that we're breathing. And when we breathe out, we're giving the gift back to them by breathing out what they need. We're alive. Not as those separate individuals who are seeking satisfaction with the practice form out there, but we're breathing as an interbeing in our practice form. It's so lovely. Breathing like this is absolutely delicious. It's just delicious. So we can anchor ourselves with the breath. There's a few other practices I'd like to mention and I've talked about these practices in other talks that are on our website, and you might want to listen to those if you'd like to explore them a little bit more. But one of the other important anchoring practices we might have is counting our breaths. So if our mind is really busy, it's easy for our mind to want to run after whatever thought comes up. So we might get one of those delicious breaths in and out, and then we start to think, did I turn off the burner on the stove before I came here? And before we know it, we've run off and the bell. Oh. Yeah. Ask me how I know that. <laughs> I've, been, I've been meditating for 40 years, and I've run away a lot. <clears throat> um, so counting our breath can give us a kind of concentration. Concentration is, is awareness stretched out over time. And so counting our breath can give us a kind of concentration that helps us stay here once we've arrived here. So we might do something like this. A breath in and out. 
and then in the space between, just drop a little one. In, out, two. Now you might find that you get to one or two or three, and then your mind goes somewhere else. Just start over at one. There's no victory to get to ten. It's okay. It's okay to just do one, 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 one. <laughs> That's perfectly okay. Yeah, it's not a contest. This is not something you use to judge yourself or beat yourself up. Oh, I didn't make it. I've actually done the other thing. I've, I've gotten to, you know, re realizing my intention was to go up to 10 and back down to zero and up to 10, and I'm like at 400. <laughs> I haven't really been counting my breath. I've just been distracted, and my mind can do two things at once. It can count, and it can think. But I wasn't present. So that's one. Another one is labeling our thoughts. This is a really powerful practice. So as you're sitting, thoughts will arise. And it's very helpful to just label what they are. Something not too specific, but not too general. So it might be something like, hmm, judgment. Hmm, planning. And I found that when I do that, when I just simply notice what, I've, what thought has come up and I give it a label, it takes away its energy and I can come back to following my breath. Well, you might experiment with that. There's a, there's a talk about that because it's quite an involved practice in itself. But those are some of the things we can do on the cushion. Now, we also practice walking meditation here. And walking meditation is simply sitting meditation in motion. It's not a break from our sitting meditation. It's actually extending our sitting meditation into our daily life in a really natural way. And again, this practice is practiced in, in all the Zen traditions that I know of, but in particular in our tradition, it has a very deep meaning. And this, this is another one that Thich Nhat Hanh brought to us, and it was another of his lifesavers. Thich Nhat Hanh was exiled from Vietnam when he left to participate in the Paris peace talks. Neither side trusted him because he wouldn't take sides. And so they wouldn't let him back in the country. And he suffered terribly. It was a very low point in his life, very dark, because he wanted so badly to help the people that were suffering, and he couldn't get home to do it. And his suffering was so bad that he made a promise to himself, I will not take another step until I can take that step in freedom. And so that's where our practice of walking meditation comes from. We don't have lives of great suffering. It's actually one of the things that makes our practice difficult. Our lives are just so easy. If we had difficult lives, we would know that we could take a step in freedom and that that was our lifeline. So we have to trust our ancestors in this. So what we do is we, we take each step and we become completely present to coming home to right here, right now. Just the weight of my body 
landing on my foot. And then we do it again. Become home to myself in the present moment. And we do it again. We don't walk the way we walk outside, which is to get from A to B. No, we don't do that. We walk simply to arrive in the present moment. One of Tai's poems, he says, there's nowhere to go and nothing to do. I'm no longer in a hurry. That's walking meditation. Why else would we walk in a circle? We're not getting anywhere in the conventional sense. But we are getting somewhere in the sense of freedom and liberation. When Thich Nhat Hanh would walk into a room, you knew he walked into the room. There could be a thousand people in that room, and the room would stop. That's the depth of the practice of walking meditation. It's amazing. So it's also helpful to coordinate our breathing with our steps. So when I walk, I tend to take a breath in with one foot and out with the next foot. That seems to work for me. Some people breathe faster or slower, so they might take two breaths in and two breaths out. I, I notice that sometimes we walk faster, sometimes we walk slower. But what I try and do is I keep the same pace. It's just how far I step out. And so I'm always doing the same walking meditation, whether it's fast or slow. One breath in, one breath out. And one of the things that really helps our practice form when we walk together is that we do it as a sangha. In our tradition, we say we flow like a river. And um, that's very different, from, again, from our practice form from the outside world. That practice form says, I want to do it my way. But this practice form says, no, we do this all together. So we walk at the same pace. Our, our, um, our guide is the person right in front of us. And we don't let a gap open up between us and the person in front of us. We walk just the same space as we were on our cushions together. So that way, we can all walk together. If I decide I'm going to walk a little slower because I want to walk slower, what I don't see is right behind me, I created a traffic jam. Everyone else has to walk now at my chosen pace. And it's like I-5 going through the convention center in Seattle. It's all backed up, but I don't even know it. So we walk together as a river. We flow at the same pace. And we listen for the bell to tell us what to do. So that's sitting and walking meditation. The, the last part of our form that I'd like to talk about is our bells. Oh. And the bell is far more than a timekeeper. That's one of its jobs, but that's its least important job. The bell is the voice of the Buddha calling you home. It's the voice of the Buddha calling you home. Listening to the bell is a very, very deep practice, especially once we realize 
that it's the voice of the Buddha calling us home. We have in our tradition something called gatas. They're little poems that we use to shift our mind, to shift our mind into the mode of liberation instead of distraction and busyness. And we have one of those for listening to the sound of the bell. Listen, listen, this wonderful sound brings me home to my true self. Listen, listen, this wonderful sound brings me home to my true self. And what is your true self? Your true self is that Buddha nature, that awakened nature that all of us share. All of us right now are Buddhas. We just don't know it, but we are. And so the bell is the voice of the Buddha calling you home to that very awakening. So you might try, try that, that, uh, that gata. Listen, listen, this wonderful sound brings me home to my true self. Now the timekeeping role is also important because it helps us move together as a group, flow as a river. So we have bells to tell us this is coming and that's coming. So the first bell we'll encounter when we show up is a bell five minutes before sitting meditation starts. And that bell reminds us to prepare for sitting meditation by taking our cushion, slowing our momentum, sitting down, beginning anew. And then you'll hear three sounds of the bell, and that is the beginning of our sitting meditation time. Followed by two sounds of the bell at the end. Now you don't have to know these things because as, since we're flowing as a river, if you don't know what things mean, just wait for someone else to, to, to lead you and, and it'll be okay. And I think what we'll do, since there's a, a fair number of new of us for a while, the, it's really nice for the bellminder to say, at the sound of this bell, we'll all stand. So that we all know. And then as we really get comfortable with that, then we'll know that that's what that bell is. I think that's much kinder than, than us looking around going, oh, what does that mean? What am I going to do? Yeah. And then as a sangha, when there's enough of us that really know, then when new people come, then they know they can just flow with us. They don't, we don't have to explain everything. But since we've had a lot of new folks recently, I think it would be really a nice practice for us to say, and now at this bell we'll turn and begin our walking, whatever it happens to be. So I really, I really want to empower the leaders to, to um, don't hesitate to speak up and, and express that kindness by saying, here's what's happening. Um, and then we'll know when to stop doing that. So since we're trying to figure out how to do our walking meditation, I won't even try and explain the bells for that at this point because we're, we're trying to figure out how, how do we do this with hybrid and with, you know, with this room. And so we'll work out our way. And as we do, the practice leaders will, will let us know if we've made changes. But um, it's evolving. Our ancestors never had this to deal with, right? <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't have any of this. You showed up at a monastery or showed up at the temple, and that's, that did that for millennia. So, 
Okay, so I've talked enough. I, I just want to come back to the main point here. And the main point is this. Uh, we have a practice form for our life in the larger world. And that practice form puts, points us towards a kind of personal gratification. But this practice is not about personal gratification. This practice is about liberation and freedom. And a great deal of that realization of liberation and freedom is realizing that we are so much more than an autonomous individual who needs to choose everything for themselves. So our practice form points us to the deep truth of our own Buddha nature and to our own liberation. And so my hope for all of us is that we will take refuge in the form, that we will hold the form with clarity and intention, not too tight. If you hold the form too tight, you turn into sort of a, like a stick in the mud, sort of like judging everybody. And if you hold it too loose, you don't have the benefit of what this form does for us. So let's find that way to be just like our sitting posture, upright, solid, dignified, but not rigid and tense and, and held in a kind of judgment and anger. So let's find that balance with our practice form so that we benefit from it. 